From the Heritage Foundation, I'm Michelle Cordero, and this is Heritage Explains. Just days after Russian President Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine, he put his nuclear weapons on high alert. So what does it mean to be on high alert? It means that his missiles are armed and ready with nuclear warheads that could be ordered within 15 minutes. But mostly, it serves as a warning. A reminder to those supporting Ukraine of Russia's nuclear superpower status and potential consequences. Remember, Russia possesses the largest arsenal of nuclear weapons in the world, and it's not afraid to make threats. Recently, Russian state television threatened the UK with a nuclear weapon dubbed by NATO as Satan II for its support of Ukraine. What will happen after Boris Johnson's words about a retaliatory strike on Russia? Why do they threaten vast Russia with nuclear weapons while they're only a small island? The island is so small that one Sarmut missile is enough to drown it once and for all. With Russian forces struggling to overtake Ukraine, how likely is the Kremlin to actually escalate the war by using a nuclear weapon on Ukraine? And if they did, how would they do it? And what should the reaction from the United States be? Our guest today is Peter Brooks. Heritage's Senior Research Fellow for Weapons of Mass Destruction and Counterproliferation. Our conversation after this short break. Tired of hoax stories? Fed up with toxic partisan coverage? There is a better option. The Daily Signal delivers news that matters to you on culture, politics, and current events. Stay up to date on the real news of the day. Subscribe to The Daily Signal wherever you get your podcasts, because you can handle the truth. Peter, thank you so much for joining us. Good to be with you. All right. So how do we know for sure that Putin is thinking of using nuclear weapons? Because he says it all the time. He does. Yes. He, he's made many, many threats, but not specific. It's ambiguous. He uses ambiguous terminology, but we also know that Russia is a major nuclear power, right? Uh, as large as the United States in terms of nuclear power, nuclear weapons we're talking about, not nuclear energy here. Um, and a lot of his um, uh, others, his functionaries, his ministers have, have made similar comments. Now, they don't say, you know, we're going to nuke you, we're going to nuke Ukraine or anything like that. But it's, it's enough that reading between the lines, we know what they're talking about. I can't quote for you exactly what they've said in that respect, but there's plenty of it out there. It's um, sort of like read between the lines. Read between the lines. Yeah, there's there's a lot of lot of threats that they've talked about. They've increased their level of alertness of their nuclear forces. Um, they're calling it a special combat regime. So what does that mean? It, you know, it's hard to tell. I mean, the intelligence services, our intelligence services, NATO's intelligence services are looking at this, and it doesn't necessarily fit into a a very easy box. It's hard to categorize, but there's enough threats there that we know because we already know what he's doing in Ukraine. So what's the next step? Right. Moving from the conventional forces, you know, tanks, right. airplanes, soldiers to nuclear to nuclear weapons. And nuclear weapons are part of Russian military doctrine, unfortunately. Yeah. 
So that's my, my next that leads right into it really well. Under what circumstances might Russia use a nuclear weapon now in Ukraine? Now, right. So let's let's we're talking about Ukraine, and when we talk about this, we kind of whittle it down from the strategic weapons, you know, the intercontinental ballistic missiles that we talk about, ICBMs, you know, transcontinental, intercontinental, you know, shooting at the United States, shooting huge nuclear weapons uh, at uh, at cities in Europe, things along that line. And when we talk about Ukraine, we're often talking about what they call battlefield nuclear weapons, tactical nuclear weapons, short range, low yield nuclear weapons. Now. Some people may see it seem ridiculous to say, you know, low yield <laughs> because a nuclear weapon is obviously right. much more powerful than any conventional weapon that we that we have. Um, it might be something on the order of what was used in World War II, but that's still huge. Uh, and then there are even ones much bigger than that that we talk call strategic long-range weapons. So there's a concern that Russia might use a smaller, low-yield, short-range nuclear weapon for effect in Ukraine or in the Ukraine crisis, in Ukraine war. Um, not specific, and there's a, several different scenarios, and we can kind of talk about how they might use these tactical or battlefield low-yield nuclear weapons in this uh, war on Ukraine. So the possible scenarios, as, as, as we see it, are things like Russia's, the war's not going well for Russia, okay? I mean, we're, we're talking on a, you know, on a, specific, a specific day here in May, and as people listen to this, um, Ukrainians are putting up a tremendous defense and even some offense, taking back some, taking back some territory. The war isn't going well. A lot of people feel that Putin, uh, Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia, is fueled by nationalism and, and, um, and even legacy. You know, he's worried about how he'll be viewed in, in Russian history. Um, is he going to be, you know, and I think he wants to be successful in this, this undertaking, which is an unjust war. I think we all, we all agree. But I don't think he wants to lose. So if the conventional war is not going well, there's a, there's a doctrine, and I don't want to get too wonky or technical here, but it's called uh, escalate to de-escalate. Mm -hmm. It's a nuclear doctrine, and I've written about this in the Daily Signal, mm -hmm. uh, where Russia might move from the conventional level, you know, tanks, airplanes, soldiers, into the nuclear domain using a low-yield tactical nuclear weapon to um, make a point, uh, to threaten, to coerce, to intimidate. And there's a number of ways he could do that. He could use it against uh, the forces in Ukraine, against the Ukrainian city. Obviously, that would be devastating. And this would be the first time these weapons would be used in 75 years. So de deeply troubling on a whole number of levels, the moral, the, the, the legal, uh, the military. And he could you know, destroy a city and say, OK, do you want more or are you going to, to surrender? So that's a possibility. Another possibility of signaling is that they could explode a weapon over an unpopulated area, um, over the Arctic Ocean, um, or on Russian territory somewhere in the far, far north. Um, another signal saying, if you don't stop resisting us, the Ukrainian government and the Ukrainian people, we could use this against you. That's another thing. Also signaling to NATO, you better stop su uh, supporting Ukraine with arms and other financial means and even, even moral support. This is something, you know, Russia, we're, we're going to win here. And if you don't, you don't know what comes next. Um, could they use uh, more tactical nuclear weapons? And we believe Russia has about 2,000. And the United States and NATO only have about um, 200. Wow. Yeah, that's another issue we could talk about if we have time, about that asymmetry between that. We got rid of a lot of uh, tactical nuclear weapons after the end of the Cold War. The Russians didn't. 
and it's not part of any arms control agreement we have with Russia. You know, we have this new strategic arms reduction treaty under the Obama administration um, that re- limited the number of ICBMs and the big, big nuclear mm-hmm. weapons, strategic nuclear weapons you're talking about. But there's nothing that restricts the Russians' tactical nuclear weapons, and we feel like they may have 2,000 of them. We may have 200, maybe 100 in Europe and 100 in storage in the United States. So there's this huge, there's this huge asymmetry. So the Russians might, um, you know, they, they could use these weapons in a way to signal to, uh, uh, to the West and to Europe and to the United States that um, it could get worse, that we could use more of these weapons, these tactical nuclear weapons, against Ukraine, against uh, cities in, in Europe. Um, now, they probably couldn't reach the United States, but don't, we can't forget that we have a lot of interests in Europe, including U.S. forces that are stationed all over, that are stationed all over the place. Uh, and then they could they could even you know this could even signal that they would go even further and talk about intercontinental ballistic missiles and nuclear war. So it's very troubling, and a lot of people are concerned about uh, Putin's state of mind. Where is he right now? Uh, the Russian army has taken significant losses. They've underperformed significantly, and Ukrainians have overperformed. I think many of us. I I always thought they were they could they could do this if they had what they needed. A lot of people weren't so sure of that, and I think they've overperformed. So things aren't going at this moment as we talk, going very well uh, for Russia. And Russia believe in um, they can be very brutal in terms of their in t- terms of their means of in terms of their means of war. Do you think it would be effective if Russia did use one of those tactics? Well, um, it's very troubling. Obviously, we have to take it very seriously. I would say at this point. Um, here in Washington, D.C. on this, on this uh, afternoon in, in May, that the risk is low, but it's not no risk. There is a risk that he could, he could move in this, in this direction. He could also, I didn't mention also, he could do an underground nuclear test in Russia somewhere. Mm-hmm. And that would also signal, right? There's a lot of political signaling that could go on, go on here towards NATO, towards Ukraine. It would be por- to, towards both of them. But it's, it's, certainly a possi- it's certainly a possibility that it could happen. Like I said, I think it's a low risk. But as things go on, that could certainly change, and the risk could go up. Now, our intelligence community is looking very, very closely at this. They're surveilling, um, you know, the Russian nuclear forces very, very closely, and they seem to be—they're not—they're not terribly concerned right now, and they've not changed um, our nuclear status. The, the, the Pentagon hasn't changed our nuclear status, or the president hasn't changed our nuclear status, our alert status. Um, so, but they're watching it very, very closely, and that could change. That could change tomorrow. Um, so it's something that everybody's keeping keeping their eye on besides what is going on on the ground in Ukraine. That leads to my next question. Well, what has the Biden administration done or said about this growing threat? Well, they've obviously uh, they're trying to they're trying to manage escalation. You know, the idea that um, we don't want a wider war. Uh, we want the uh, brutality. We want the aggression. We want the violence to stop. We want the return of the territorial integrity and um, sovereignty of the of Ukraine uh, to the Ukrainian government to the Ukrainian Ukrainian people, um, you know they're they're being cautious uh, they're being open uh, they've talked about they've talked about the fact that this might happen uh, as you remember they've they've also talked about the possible use of chemical weapons uh, they which is unique in that they. Um, I think they were kind of trying to pull the rug out from underneath the Russians who might try something that's called a false flag operation by saying, you know, somebody used chemical weapons against Russian forces or against Ukrainian civilians and blaming it on somebody else. So they've, they've, they've talked about this openly, I think, to try to, to, try to hem Russia in. 
But once again, if you have a leader who's uh, fueled by concerns over his legacy uh, and nationalism and is losing a war, that can, that can quickly spin, spin, out of, spin out of control. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a, a tremendous amount of uh, concern on, on both sides of the aisle about, the, about this possibility of this, of this escalating, obviously, beyond Ukraine, uh, a wider war. And then, of course, it moving up the escalation chain, as we say, in, inside, inside the business, moving from the conventional to even other weapons of mass destruction. We talked about chemical or biological and then, of course, of course, uh, of course to nuclear. So the Biden administration um, is in a, in a very tough position because it seems that very few people, if anybody, have any influence over Putin. Is there anything that they should be saying or doing that they're not? Well, obviously, they need to continue to be talking talking about this. And what the thing they really need to be doing is thinking about what happens if it happens. Exactly. No, God forbid. Yeah. That it should happen. I mean, what what can we do? And unfortunately, um, you know, it would depend on the circumstances, and it'd be very very complicated. Um, I mean, there are lots of options in responding from from the very very risky to the less risky. Not necessarily a lot of easy choices. And I hope that they're. They should be working on how they're going to respond because if it does, they might need to respond, um, respond quickly. Um, yeah. In conclusion, can you explain to our audience what maybe a few of those choices sure. could be? Yeah, there are a lot of them. And like I said, it's very serious. You want to achieve your objectives in Ukraine and control escalation is very, very important. I mean, things like something that's very, very risky would be responding in kind by using nuclear weapon ourselves. Very, very risky uh, with an attack on Russia you know, to try to respond to this. Uh, I'm not advocating this. I'm just saying these are what I'm talking right. about. Another very risky choice because of the chance of escalation, you know, too, is responding in kind against Russian forces in Ukraine. That means using, when I say responding in kind, I mean using a nuclear weapon. Risky would be in a conventional attack, you know, using aircraft or missiles and things like that, non-nuclear forces on Russian forces in Ukraine. Uh, less risky would be continuing to support the Ukrainian government and people like we, like we are with arms, et cetera. And least risky, I think, is doing nothing militarily. Uh, but instead use diplomatic, economic, and informational measures and tools to punish Russia for its use of, use of nukes. So this is very, very serious stuff. It's very, very complicated. And I'm kind of glad you didn't ask me what we would do if they, if they did do these things because it would depend on the circumstances. Yeah. And there are options. But as I mentioned, you know, from the very risky uh, to even uh, I think all of the options I gave you were risky at some at some at some level. Um, so this is of, of tremendous concern because while we're seeing this uh, terrible terrible brutality in Ukraine, it could expand beyond that into NATO, and of course the, in this day and age uh, with the weapons uh, capabilities of weapons, intercontinental weapons, the United States is, could potentially also be in the bullseye. So one last question. With the intelligence that you know and just assessing the situation, I think you answered this, but just one more time, okay. what, what is the likelihood, do you think, that they use one? I think where people are today is that it's low risk, but it's not no risk. And every day- Low bring, risk, not no risk. I like that. Right. It's low risk and not no risk. And every day brings new challenges because the situation on the ground is changing. And I mean, I could talk about what's happening today, and, but that may be different, may be different tomorrow. Right. Um, so, yes, low risk, but not no risk. And the challenge is to control that escalation and the, and the expanse of the, of the war in, in uh, Eastern Europe. Well, Peter, thank you so much for coming on to talk about this very serious topic. Thanks for having Hopefully, me. Hopefully, we don't have to talk about it again. Yes, that would be great. And uh, thank you again for joining us. Thanks for having me. Good to be with you. 
And that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you liked this episode, we would love to hear from you. Or even if you didn't like it, let us know. Leave us a comment here or on social media. We run the full episode on the Heritage Facebook page. Tim is up next week. We'll see you then. Heritage Explains is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is produced by Michelle Cordero and Tim Desher, with editing by John Pop.